American Ballpark. It's the Better Off Red Podcast. Here's your host, Jamie Ramsey. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to a very special edition of the Better Off Red Podcast. We recently wrapped up Reds Fest 2015 at the Convention Center in downtown Cincinnati, where we collected over five hours of podcast material with 19 star-studded Reds-related guests. Over the next few weeks, we're going to make portions of those recordings available right here on the Better Off Red podcast. Three of the guests who stopped by to chat in our area at Reds Fest were Reds broadcasters Marty Burneman, Chris Welsh, and Jeff Brantley. You'll hear what they had to say coming up, but first, I want to introduce you to an incredibly talented young lady from Los Angeles named Lael Neal. Lael grew up in Virginia, but is currently writing and performing her beautiful music from sunny California. This is her song, Born in the Summer, from her debut album, I'll Be Your Man, available now on iTunes. set of great pipes to another longtime reds hall of fame broadcaster and america's guest marty brenneman joined us at reds fest to talk about a lot of non-reds items including his memories broadcasting college basketball games his current tv show and book recommendations and who his favorite broadcasters are here's marty Hey, how's it going, man? You doing uh, it, all right? You know what? Yes. I returned from three weeks in the Caribbean and Siesta Key on Tuesday because I'm a big fan of warm weather. Absolutely. And uh, I'm good. I'm good. You're Amanda looking I, good. We went to Universal in Orlando to the wonderful world of Harry Potter. Oh, your main man. Anybody's never been there, it's amazing. I'm not kidding you. In fact, yeah. I'm reading book number one. I was inspired. Really? Yes. I was inspired. You read Harry Potter? Let me tell you something now. It's good stuff. Hey, I recently had both Greg Vaughn and Danny Graves on separate occasions on our podcast here, and both of them had glowing, glowing remarks about you. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with both of those guys. Well, it's kind of interesting because I had a great relationship with Danny when he played. Uh, My relationship with Greg Vaughn was nothing to write home about. I didn't particularly hold him in real high regard as a guy who was warm toward the media, and I don't think he held me in very high regard, but things happen over the years. And uh, uh, I've often said, and you know it, uh, that of all the players that I've been around in 42 years, Greg Vaughn is the single greatest leader of any player I've ever been associated with, more so than Rose, more so than Bench, more so than Morgan, more so than anybody. What he did in 1999, uh, and that was the year, of course, the club went to Milwaukee for the last series and needed to win two and got out of there with one, and then the Mets shut him out in the one game extra to get to the postseason. That had nothing to do with what Greg Vaughn did. He had hit 16 or 17 home runs in the month of September. 
And if you didn't give out everything you got, he would get in your face in the dugout in front of your teammates. He was the most amazing guy. He had 46 or 47 home runs that year. And I've often said that, and I'm shocked this organization has never gotten around to seriously consider hiring him because he could teach young players so much. When he was inducted into the Sacramento Sports Hall of Fame a few months ago, uh, a good friend of mine, Joe Babich, who I met through Dusty and who's a dear friend now, called me and said, can you tell me anything about Greg Vaughn? I said, yeah, I can tell you a lot about Greg Vaughn, and I proceeded to tell him what I just said. And out of that, Greg and I have established a relationship. I spent a lot of time with him last night, and I just have the greatest respect in the world for what he did as a leader of men. And in Danny's case, Danny and I, I think Danny Graves and Scott Sullivan were the last two players that I played golf with regularly. <laughs> That's how long ago it's been. And, and I, I had great respect for Danny and more respect for the way he's turned his life around since getting out of baseball. And, and, and so it's, it's, uh, it's, I think it's a mutual admiration society. If I've ever write a book, which I won't, yeah, you uh, will. they would be in my top 10 all-time favorite players. But they are, they're, they're good guys. They're really decent guys. Yeah, Danny was just on. We just released the Danny Graves podcast yesterday, so if you guys get a chance to listen to that. Uh, I asked Danny. He's working for uh, 120 Sports right, now. Right, in Chicago. Yeah, and he said, uh, I asked him, I said, how much of, of an influence has Marty been on you as, in your broadcasting career? And he says, whenever I go into a topic, I think, what would Marty say? And now and then immediately that, that, that's not a good idea because what Marty I, might say might get you fired. The first thing that came in my mind is those like, what would Jesus do bracelets? I, I know. I'm thinking like you're going to get one of those. What would Marty do? I know. No, I, I don't do I'm that. I'm surprised there's not a T-shirt yet. I'm not it. a self promoter like some people that I know are. <laughs> I, that's not a reflection on you. That's a reflection on some of the guys that I deal with regularly. Oh, trust um, me. In Danny's case. What people had not seen from him is the work he did on television a right. few years ago during the NCAA tournament or during the collegiate regular season. Yeah. He was sensational. I agree. In fact, I picked up the phone and called him and, and, and extolled his virtues about what a great job he did. I think one of the networks missing the boat and not hiring him full time to work if it's only on a collegiate level. He's outstanding in the, in the television booth analyzing pictures and uh, – somebody should pick up on that and give him a job doing collegiate baseball. Yeah, I, I definitely echo those sentiments. You know, Danny's a great guy, and, uh, you know, Greg Vaughn's a great guy. And you talk about these guys getting into broadcasting. It seems like a lot of the former Reds, not even uh, just Reds, but the Bengals, Reds, they've, you know, come out with a lot of good former players that are good broadcasters. Now, Demetri Young said that Aaron Boone is probably the best He's awfully good. The baseball analysis, he, he, can, he watches on a regular basis. Well, and the interesting thing about that is when, when these guys get jobs in, in, in the broadcast business, all of a sudden they, they have a different perspective of what I've been doing for all these years. There ain't too many guys on this club that like me. <laughs> but the most amazing thing is the longer guys go – in terms of getting out of playing actively in the sport, all of a sudden they become friends of mine. And I scratch my head and say, how the hell that happened? <laughs> but that's, it, it's amazing. And almost without fear or exception, when they start to understand 
and I've never had a personal vendetta against any player. There have been guys I don't like, but in terms of going after a guy on the air because I don't like him, that has never happened. After they've been away for a while, they understand that whatever I said about them in a critical manner was never leveled against them because I had a personal dislike. My, my, my philosophy is if I'm going to praise you when you play well, then I reserve the right to be critical when you don't. And there are too many players that think it should be a one-way street. And that ain't the way life works. And whatever you folks do for a living or did for a living, if you did well, that's great. But we all stump our toes every now and then, and there are going to be people there to be critical of the fact that you didn't get the job done. So I, I don't worry about whether they like me or not. At this stage of my career, I'm old enough to be their grandfather, and in some cases their great-grandfather, so I don't <laughs> worry about it. Every day, almost without exception, once a baseball season gets underway, and I normally get down to Great American Ballpark no later than maybe 2.30 for a 7-10 game, and the first stop that I make is in his office. And we sit around and we chat for 10 minutes or longer, and then I get up and I go about my Cl business. Closed but this door. Is a must, it's a closed-door <laughs> meeting. And we've solved a lot of problems in this organization. But if there were microphones in that room, Ooh. that'd be bad news, I boy. wouldn't have that office anymore, no, I can you, tell you, you that much. You wouldn't have an office anywhere near that ballpark. <laughs> No, we've been we've been pals for a long time. Yeah, and now true. you're in the connect zone, and now we can actually s promote something that you're doing on social media. Marty Brenneman is now on Instagram, ladies and gentlemen. How about that, huh? Lisa, how you doing? You all right? Good. She's not only that, but I tell you what, I may be signing up for soon. Uh oh. Twitter. The big T. Maybe. Uh oh. Although Twitter could get me fired. That could get me fired. We might have to make it private. So I'm going to be very delicate with that. Amanda is, is in, she's really putting the heat on me to, to sign up for Twitter. But I've really enjoyed Instagram. I've enjoyed that you're, a lot. You're good at it. Well, I've you, done a lot. You're I've very done, active, and I think that's the key. I've had a good time with it, and we travel so much, especially in the off season, to pretty cool places. So we take a lot of pictures. You take a lot of pictures. You know the pictures that I like the most? The ones without you wearing a shirt. That's a pretty good look. <laughs> For a guy 73 years old now, that ain't a bad look. Not bad. I've gotten a lot of compliments from women. <laughs> and it, a few guys. <laughs> <laughs> Marty Brenneman's here with us in the Connect Zone. Um, Marty, let's talk a little bit about um, what you're reading this, these days. You're, you're an avid reader. Yes, I am. You have a Kindle that you don't leave home without. I do not. That Kindle travels everywhere I go. I'm an avid reader of books. Uh, fiction. Um, right. Well, I said I'm reading book one of the seven book Harry Potter series mm -hmm. after going down to Universal, and it's sensational. I'm almost finished book one in three days, and I'm going to go to two, three, four, five, six, and seven. But anybody who reads Vince Flynn, anybody know who Vince Flynn is? Well, there there are books about a character. Uh, Vince Flynn is dead now. He passed away. But there's another author, author by the name of Ben Coase, C-O-E-S, who's a former speechwriter for President, the second President Bush. Michael Anderson was the one who turned me on to Dewey Andreas, and I would recommend those books highly. They are real. I've read three of the four, and they are really good. I read all the time. I don't read very much baseball because I don't need to. I live <laughs> it. 
Yeah, that's one thing that I found too. That once you're you work in this business, I don't read many baseball books no, at I don't. all either. There's some that the book on Koufax, which was sensational, mm-hmm. uh, and there have been some other ones. The Mickey Mantle book, same author, great right? Books. Uh, Jan or Jane uh, yeah, Levy. Yeah, yeah. tremendous. Uh, the Koufax book was sent. She wrote both of those books. Right, right, right. The last good boy, I think, is the name yeah, of the Mantle yeah, book. Yeah, the Mantle book. And then the book on Sandy Koufax is entitled simply Koufax. Mm-hmm. And they're great books. Yeah. So that leads into the next question: What are you watching on TV these days? Well, I, you know what? I'm glad you asked me that question. If you are fortunate enough to have Amazon Prime, The Man in the High Castle, it's revisionist history about the Second World War and how the Germans and the Japanese won the war rather than the U.S. Wow. It is a heck of a series. The series on Pablo Escobar, Narcos. Uh, Narcos, yeah, on Netflix. Already been reviewed for, uh, renewed for year number two. Great series. And the BBC Sherlock Holmes series. You're a big fan of that. Unbelievable. You're a big fan of that. Have you started watching Fargo yet? I have not, and I know you recommend this is year two, right? Year two, you don't have to, you don't have to have anything to. So you can watch year two without watching standalone. Year one. Yep, yep, good I'm stuff. I'm a big fan of Homeland on Showtime. Yes, great series. I watch a lot of television, and Amanda hates TV, so it doesn't work too good. <laughs> you, uh, let's talk a little bit about another uh, one of your passions: college basketball. Now, I don't know if you guys, I know there's some probably some Kentucky fans out here, some uh, North Carolina fans. No, they ain't, there's only one North Carolina fan in here. Uh, did you guys know that the, the, the Christian Leitner game that, you know, Duke versus Kentucky, Marty was broadcasting for uh, Corky. CBS? I did that for the NCAA uh, Basketball Tournament Network. He broadcasted that game. And, the uh, they, Duke-Kentucky they, game when they Leitner aired, hit the shot. Yeah, they aired highlights of Marty's call on a UPS commercial. They did last a, uh, two years ago. Yeah. Two years ago. Yeah. What, was, uh, what was that game like for you? Well, I mean, uh, I've been fortunate because a lot of people feel like game six of the 75 World Series was arguably the best baseball game ever played, and a lot of people felt like, that game between Duke and Kentucky was the best college basketball game ever played. Uh, it was amazing. There were more big plays made in that game, more great shots, um, more decisions by coaches that made you scratch your head and wonder what the heck's going on, uh, especially the decision by Rick Patino to not put somebody on the baseline to make the pass made by Grand Hill as tough a pass as you could make. Uh, it was a great game, and I, I know how Leitner incurred the wrath of all the Kentucky fans, especially when he stepped on the chest of Aminu Timberlake. <laughs> um, and as I've said on the radio a number of times, it's been a lot of years now. Get over it. <laughs> In fact, they brought Leitner back, which was a great story. They brought him back to Lexington, I guess, last year. He got an incredibly surprising warm welcome by the Kentucky fans. And he's a pretty good guy. Uh, he, he's not a bad guy at all. Um, and then the, uh, what, 30, 30 on 30, the yeah. ESPN thing, yeah. did a, the, a piece on him called I Hate Christian Leitner or something like that with tremendous peace. Uh, but the game itself was, was just beyond belief. Uh, you had Rick Pitino and you had, a, ironically, uh, Kentucky got there because the night, uh, two nights before that, Kentucky defeated UMass, coached by John Calipari. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, of course, Duke was a matchup with Mike Krzyzewski. It was just – it was everything you would want to see in a college basketball game. Do you miss broadcasting college games? I do. I, I, I'm, I'm a tremendous college fan. But I got to the point, age-wise, I, I didn't need to be getting on and off airplanes 12 months a year. I spent nights in the Atlanta airport sleeping on the floor, oh. and I said, I don't need to do that anymore. So, but I do. I miss, especially the tournament. Mm-hmm. I did 15 or 16 years of the NCAA tournament. There is no sporting event on earth that could compare to that with all due respect to the World Series and the Super Bowl and the NBA Finals. Uh, it's just an amazing event, and I was fortunate enough to be uh, doing 11 Final Fours, uh, it, it's special. It really is. We have a lot of good teams in the area this year, yeah. Z- Xavier and UC, and, of course, Kentucky always and Louisville usually. Um, what do you think of these these Xavier Musketeers and these UC, UC Bearcats? Well, I, especially Xavier. I mean, they've already played some big games against quality competition, and they've won them all. Um, that's a very good basketball team uh, coached by Chris Mack. Uh, you see, they lost a game the other night they should not have lost. Right, right. They should have beaten Butler. Not that Butler's not a good team, but you got them on your home floor. You can't lose to them. Uh, but I think Mick Cronin's got a nice team. I think he's got a club that differs from the teams he's had in recent years because his team can put the ball in the basket. Uh, his other teams could play great defense, and they couldn't score in an empty gym. <laughs> now they got a pretty good offensive team. So it's going to be a fun year watching college basketball in this town, I think. Your son, Tom Brenneman, of course, is a Reds broadcaster, but he also uh, he does football, NFL football on Fox. Have you ever – did that ever come up for you? Was that ever an opportunity to, for you to do NFL games? Uh, the only opportunity I had was to do college basketball uh, on a network level back in the 70s, and I opted not to do it for a lot college of College football, reasons. you mean? Basketball. Oh, basketball, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, Tom's leaving today to go to New England to do the Patriots and the Eagles tomorrow. So no football for you? I did a lot of college football, but I no, I did Virginia Tech football. I did one year of William and Mary football when I was living at you all from Blacksburg. Really, no kidding about that. I did a year and I did 1973 when they were one in ten, and Alabama beat them 77 to six in Tuscaloosa. I brought them a lot of luck. <laughs> it was brutal. I bet those players didn't get away with much over the area. No, either, no did I, they? college. That's a different. That's, <laughs> you hold pros and college guys to a different standard they ain't getting paid or at least the ones that are i don't know about <laughs> so I don't, i'm not i'm not as heavily into criticism on college players as i would have been on pro players are you a jay billis fan jay billis first game jay billis ever did he did with me is that right yeah and terry gannon the first game he ever did he did with me jay billis is very outspoken on twitter about the ncaa i know and i agree and, with almost everything yeah, he says and uh yeah, what what are your thoughts on some of these? Uh, you know, it's in my opinion, and I don't know if I if I'm uh, allowed to speak on it or what, but I think these kids should be getting paid. I could not agree more. I think you have kids, uh, especially kids from the inner city, and they come and they play with distinction, and they put a lot of money in the coffers of the university that they represent, and a lot of these kids on a weekend don't have enough money to buy a pizza or have a date because they don't got any money in their pocket. And there's something wrong with that. Now, I understand some of the, the, the uh, burdens that you have to overcome because if you're going to do it for the men, then you got to do it for the women too. And all of a sudden now that becomes really taxing 
on the, on the economy of a university, no matter how much money they make. But there has to be a way to put some money into the pockets of these kids uh, and enable, to allow them to do, in many cases, what most college kids can do and not even think about it. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm full in support of what Jay Billis preaches. Yeah, he's, a, he's an interesting guy. And he's a great follow on Twitter. So when you do finally sign up for Twitter, that should be one of your first guys. Uh, believe me, I will. I know how outspoken Jay can be. So lastly, before we uh, sign off here, I, I know you, we were just getting started. I, we sh- well, we only have 30 minutes of it. We could I was going to scratch all my stuff off and just stay here oh, all day. Then let's do it. Who are some of your favorite broadcasters, past or present? That's a good question. Well, I mean, something's wrong if you're not a Ben Scully fan. I mean, he's the greatest baseball announcer in the history of our business. A lot of guys that people would never even remember because I'm so blasted old and I came from a different <laughs> part of the country. Uh, the guy used to do the Washington Redskins games when I was a kid by the name of Jim Gibbons. was great. Uh, I was a big fan of Bob Prince when he managed uh, when he broadcast the Pirate games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll tell you, some of the good young broadcasters yeah. is a guy with the San Francisco Giants, Dave Fleming, who works yeah. with John Miller and Dwayne Kuyper and Mike Kruko. Dave O'Brien, who does the Boston Red Sox games. Yeah. So I think uh, – I think everything's. I think the broadcasting world's in good hands with uh, with guys like I don't, that. Once once Scully's gone, and once Euchre's gone, and once Denny Matthews is gone, and once I'm gone, you're not going to have anybody that hangs around for forty plus years with one team. Yeah, I don't think so. That that ain't going to happen anymore. That's not going to happen. Anymore. How about Thank Jim you. Kelch? Jim Kelch. I've finally gotten Jim Kelch out of that shell that he was in. And I've, all, I've gotten him now to where he'll act stupid on the air like I do, and we'll have a lot of chucks, and he's fun to work with. Are he, you? And I think he's done an amazing job for our ball club. I really, truly do. And I've, I've told Jeff Brantley this. I think from the time Jeff Brantley began broadcasting play-by-play with you a few years, several years ago now, from this point now, he's improved more than any broadcaster I listen he's, to on a regular he's basis. He's done an amazing job. I'm not kidding you. I mean, I, and he was a guy that when he first came, people were slow to warm to because of his accent. And I think people now have really embraced him. And uh, there are things that go on in that radio booth that we can't talk about. But, I mean, there are times when he has me crying. I'm laughing so hard. And I'm blessed because I work with a bunch of good guys, and we all like each other. Uh, the TV guys as well as the radio guys, although I tell my son and, and Chris Welch all the time, you can say the most obscene word that you can think of on the air, and you're not going to get any feedback because nobody's listening to you. Now, they may be watching it, but they ain't listening to you. And, of course, that gets under their skin a little bit. <laughs> he is the most punctual man I've ever met, Marty Brennan, and he's running late right now, so that's, that's on me. But, Marty Brennan, ladies friend. and gentlemen, thanks for thanks, coming Shane. by. Thank you. Up next on our special Reds Fest episode, 
is Chris Welsh. Chris is entering his 24th season as a Reds TV analyst after enjoying a five-year big league playing career with the Padres, Expos, Rangers, and Reds. Here's Chris talking about the young Reds pitching, the importance of having a winning attitude, and the overall state of the Reds franchise. How you been, man? Good. How are you? Excellent. You're Excellent. looking great. Off-season off has been good. Um, you know, I'm kind of anticipating next year, uh, obviously, like everybody is. Uh, yeah, but this year, we needed to settle down a little bit after the season because the last couple of months of the year was, was tough on everybody. Oh, yeah. And, and I pl I've played on, bad, on teams that have had bad years. Yeah. And the thing that bothers me the most about those is sometimes you have lack of accountability. Mm-hmm. You have different people, players, coaches, front office people, scouts, you know, just affiliated with the team, come up with all different reasons why the team didn't do well. And a lot of times they're just missing the mark uh, because maybe it's not as complicated as they actually think. And I really think that, you know, this team on paper had the talent to match up against almost anybody out there. Absolutely. I mean, because I did every game. And, and, and you did too. So, so here we are. We're looking at the lineups. Mm -hmm. We're looking at the Giants lineup that they're running out there versus the Reds lineup that yeah. they're running out mm -hmm. there. And I'm saying, you know, this guy is not starting for us, and this guy is not starting for us, and our guy's starting over this guy. And all of a sudden, you've got six players on your starting lineup, and they're only starting three. Yeah. You know, if you're going to take the best of. Sure. So, what what were we missing? So I I, I think that. The teams that I played on that were bad mm -hmm. needed somebody to shake them, yeah, and say you can win, but you gotta ha you gotta all pull at the same time, and you gotta all pull in the same direction, and and I, and, I, and you have to make the teammates around you better rather than thinking about your own self. And, and I think that's really where they need to go. Of course, they've got financial issues they've got to cover and and open up payroll and sign guys and arbitration and all. And those are all the mechanics of dealing with a roster. But the attitude, you, somehow Brian Price has got to get this team away from an attitude where it was okay to win 98 games. Because I Lose didn't, see, I didn't see enough pissed off people after yeah. losses. Right, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, you're being honest about it, and I, I appreciate that. And let me ask you, when you played on those bad teams, did you rebound the next year or two? And if so, how? How well, did it happen? You know, for me, I rebound the next year. And the, the teams that we had were not as good on paper. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and when you're on a bad team, what happens is, is that you're beginning to worry more about yourself than you are about the team. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where it goes south, right? That's where it goes south. Because you worry, well, this team's bad, I, but i got to take care of number one here. Sure. And, and uh, I, I, I think that... The goal at the end of the night is put a W on the board, not get four hits, not throw six shot out innings, not come in and do a good job in middle relief. It's actually to get the win. And if you don't have a W at the end of the night, everybody in that clubhouse should feel a little bit empty. And um, right now, it seems like on those teams that win, there's that emptiness. On teams that lose, they're, they're, well, you know, we lost, but I did my job. Yeah, yeah. And you cannot have that attitude. The 1990 team didn't have that attitude. I've talked at length with, uh, you know, we watched them, obviously, uh, at length with the guys that are on the team. Eric Davis was telling some stories last night uh, about that. And uh, it, it's amazing the attitude difference of, of a team that wins a World Series and a team that doesn't because there's not that much difference in talent. 
Right. Yeah. At the beginning of the year, there's not a whole lot of difference between the talent of the Kansas City Royals and the talent of the Cincinnati Reds. Now, throughout the year, injuries, attrition, underperformance began to etch away. But on paper, April 1st, those teams are very close. Yeah. Yeah, no question. And one lost 98 games, and the other won the World Series, and you got to ask yourself why. Well, with that being said, and I mean, do you think this? And and, and I'm I'm guessing that you're going to say yes. On paper, this team has what it takes to come back in 2016, right, and compete. You got to have pitching, you know. Yeah, and you know, when when you trade away a couple of pitchers like Mike Leake and and Johnny Cueto, you create a huge void. Uh, if you lose uh, a role to Chapman to a trade, and we all assume that's probably likely to happen, uh, you're going to have another void. So people are going to have to step up and fill those positions. The most difficult the position to fill is the one left by Cueto. Yeah. You know, ask yourself this. The Reds have some great young pitchers coming up. They got great experience last year. Uh, there were some flashes of excitement and brilliance out of guys like Descafani and Rezell Iglesias and Lamb pitched a great game and and uh, the other lefty at the very end of the year pitched a really good game. Um, but how many of those pitchers in your rotation would have gotten the ball and a start for the New York Mets? <laughs> That's right. None. None. No. Yeah. They're not. They're not pitching in the playoffs. Right. The only guy on the Reds pitching staff that would be pitching in the playoffs for the Mets would have been a role to Chapman. Yeah. So that now they're a special team. Sure. But they're a team that's going to stay together for a while. Yeah. And this is where you need. Scafani to say, you know what, I may not throw as hard as Syndergaard or Matt Harvey or, you know, Matts or anybody else, yeah. but I've got to step into the role of being a solid top of the rotation pitcher because I'm going to be up against Zach Greinke, Peyton Kershaw, all the great pit. They're going to match me up against them, and I've got to be able to hold my own, not just give a good performance and say he's an up-and-comer. I think so. The next step is what you want to make it. Sure. Do this you want is, to be yeah. competitive or do you want to beat those guys? Right. And you beat those guys as a team. You don't beat them as individuals. And, uh, you know, hey, they're, they're good guys. They work hard. I watch them every day. It's a hardworking team. But, boy, you got to pull the oars in the right direction. Let me ask you, how important is it to, to have a good clubhouse where, like you said, the oars are going in the right direction? You know, the only way for a team that doesn't absolutely dominate on paper you know, there were some Yankee teams that were just simply so good. The big red machine. Sure. You know, those, those, those guys, if, they, if their sum of all their parts are equal to the value of those players individually, they're, they're so good, they're all going to the Hall of Fame, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, the Royals aren't like that. You know, the Mets weren't like that. Three of the last six years, the Giants have not been like that. They've been better. The sum of their parts have been better than the individual values, and that's what the Reds have to be. Yeah. And they've got a. And this is the biggest challenge in my mind for Brian Price, is how to get rid of the taste of 2015, and get these guys to win as a team. And in my mind, it really starts in the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. You know, I know there's an age-old debate in the minor league philosophy. You know, do we win or do we develop players? Well, I say you win by developing winning players. And I go back to the times when I was uh, in the minor leagues. I was a 24th round draft pick. I don't threw, you know, in the big, I, you know, I wasn't a hard thrower. And had I not been on winning teams in the minor leagues, I would never have gotten the major leagues. 
I came up through the New York Yankee organization. I've got five championship rings. We won every year. You know why? We were expected to win every year. The no matter what level. It didn't matter. Yeah. We're, 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 we're in rookie ball. We're not developing just the two, two or three round top draft picks there. You were winning. <laughs> and that, that top round pick, who eventually was a you know, good big league player, learned how to win at that level. And then he learned how to win a double A. Then he learned how to win a triple A for a couple of years. And then he's in the big leagues. So that way it makes losing distasteful. You want losing to be so distasteful mm -hmm. that you avoid it at all costs. And it's harder nowadays to do that with the emphasis on personal accomplishments and personal statistics where you're, you're looking at different sabermetric formulas to evaluate players and so on. At the end of the day, I'm, all, I'm a numbers guy. You know the number or the number in the letter I like? I like the number in the win column. The W. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, you know, pitch pitch counts. You know, I like pitch counts. I like first pitch strike. I like second pitch strike. You know, so I can talk numbers too. But you got to have team numbers. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think that sometimes we make it too complicated. Yeah. You got to let guys get out there and play. And play for the same reason as they did last year when they were in, you know, Daytona or, or – uh, you know, uh, Louisville, uh, and, and they play for the same reason every game, which is to win. To win, yeah. You know, Eric Davis told a great story last night about the 1990 team. He said that they won 9-0, they and oh, and um, they lost that 10th game. And a lot of teams that he had been on would say, well, hey, we won nine games in a row. You know, you lose one, it's going to happen in baseball. Not that 90 team. They were, to a man, every pissed off. That they lost, that, they that, lost that game. <laughs> they they fully expected to, to win every that, game. Exactly. You had to figure at that time that was a special team. Oh yeah. Now I don't, you, you don't you don't do it by snapping your fingers, but you do it by going to the veterans in your in your team, and they have to understand the responsibility for them is not just to pitch well, or to show up early and run laps, or not to you know hit well. They've got to make the team around them better. And to make losing unacceptable, right? And that's the only way you move forward. Well said. Well yeah. said. Do you think there's some uh, some credence to the fact that uh, some of these teams, like the Royals, who have endured many years of losing, the Pirates the same way, these guys that they went when they became successful, a lot of their minor league players, some of their that are now in the major leagues, came up together. They advanced each stage together. Do, uh, what are your thoughts I on that? I think had a lot to do with that. You know, we were talking the same thing about that 1990 team again. You know, I was in the Reds Meyer Leagues in, in early uh, in the 80s, uh, mid-80s really, and then came up. I was only there for a month or so and came up. And when I was down in AAA uh, with the, 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 the very um, in-and-out Denver Zephyrs. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Chris Sabo was there. Mm -hmm. Barry Larkin was there. Kurt Stillwell was there. Paul O'Neill mm -hmm. was there. Cal Daniels was there. Um you know, Jeff Montgomery, who went on to have a great career as a closer with the Royals. Um, I mean, they had all, uh, Eric Davis had just gone to the major leagues. And behind me there, you know, was Dibble yeah. and Charlton. Yeah. So so all those guys came up. And, yeah. So, you know, a lot of credit goes to Pete Rose for giving those guys some playing time, you know, in the, in the mid-'80s that allow them to play together, get their lumps a little bit, learn what it's like. You know, they're playing with Davey Concepcion and they're playing with Dave Parker and they're sitting around listening to Pete Rose. So they're understanding what it's all about. And then it all culminated 
for them in 1990. And um, I, I think there is a lot to do with that. And I really wish that the Reds had more in their system at the top level, especially when it comes to position players. Um, but, you know, it, it, that's all cyclical. You can't do anything about that unless you're the, the player development guy. Then, then, you know, you better do something about that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of those pitchers. We uh, we talked about it briefly, but give me an idea. I mean, you're you see the Reds on a daily basis. You've pitched in the big leagues. You know, you're one of the the smartest pitching guys I've ever talked to. Give me an idea on some of these guys we need to look forward to, like in maybe a little bit of a scouting report on guys like John Lamb and Rysel Iglesias. And Let's start with the, at the top with uh, Anthony DiScafani. Uh, DiScafani is a really interesting guy to me because he is uh, he's very stoic on the mound, but he is really focused. I mean, he's like the Joey Votto of the pitching staff, and he you can't read his mind. It looks like he's got a poker face going all the time. You don't know. He looks unhappy all the time. <laughs> You know, even if he just won the lottery, you know, or, or, you know, or he just got bombed, you know, knocked out in the first inning, yeah. you can't tell the difference, right. which is great. Yeah. Some pitchers have a hard time doing that. The only thing that he's missing to become a really good pitcher, and I don't like to say he's a number one, a number two, a number three. I think right. that's scout speak, and I think a lot of that you can throw away. Because for one year, a guy can pitch like a number one. The next year, he pitches like a number five. Sure. But, and then there are a few number ones out there, but Reds don't have any of those. I'm talking about Greinke and Kershaw oh, cool. yeah. and that type of pitcher, you know, David Price. The only thing that DiScafani's missing in my mind is a little bit more off of his changeup. His, his slider is outstanding. His sinking fastball is outstanding. He's beginning to be able to use the zone and move up in the zone with a four-seam fastball. He's got a nice backspin on it. I want to see him take a little bit more off his changeup. I always thought that would really help Mike Leake. Mike Leak, that, that's the only thing. Leak only has about six mile an hour difference. Yeah. He needs if he can add another five to that, now you're talking about something really good. Same for Lee Scafani. John Lamb has got a ways to go because he'll pitch a really good game and and then a bad game. And then he may have not been completely healthy last year. You know, we hear now that, you know, he's had some issues and this and that. And I hope he comes in. I, I hope that he keeps his ears open and listens to what the coaches have to teach him because he's got talent. He's a left-hander with a lot of movement on his fastball, and he's got easy 90-mile-an-hour stuff, not overpowering, but plenty hard enough to pitch in the major leagues. This has to harness that and repeat it. Uh, and you can say the same thing for a lot of guys. I mean, I was very disappointed that John Moscott was hurt last year. Yeah. Um, I, was I mean, I keep hearing really good things about him from those in the minor leagues for the Reds who watch him pitch, who I respect their opinion a lot. Yeah. And uh, they really are high on John. And I'm, I'm interested to see what he can do, um, you know, when he gets a chance here in the big leagues. Uh, Brandon Finnegan, uh, guy's a bulldog, man. He reminds yeah. me of Tom Browning. <laughs> you know, Absolutely, a little yeah. bit. He really does. Yeah. Uh, I'm anxious to see him. One of my favorite guys, though, really, of the whole group is Rysel Iglesias. I, I really think this kid's a Pedro, Pedro Martinez in the making. Uh, he understands pitching. Uh, he's got a great feel. He's got a fluid delivery. He's sneaky with the fastball. He can pitch at 90 miles an hour, but when he needs 94, he's got that. There aren't too many pitchers that can do that. Uh, I, I think he's the gem of them all, if you want to know my opinion. Yeah. Uh, but, again, young kid from foreign country that doesn't really know much about America, you got to make sure that he matures as a human being, as a man, while he gets better as a pitcher. That means making, you know, having somebody watch him to, to uh, 
make sure that he stays on the program because it's easy to vary. You know, it's easy to yeah. it's easy to wander when you're making a lot of money. Yeah. You never you never knew what money was before. Right. The fact that the Reds were starting so many starting pitchers every day last year, late in the season, or even that kind of hurt the bullpen a little bit as far as the because the starters were only going like four or five innings. I mean, how give everybody an idea of what that the toll that takes on guys that are expected to pitch only like maybe four innings at a, at a, at a, you at know, a time. It, you get exposed. That, that's the problem. Your bullpen looks like lights out in, in April and May, and by August they're worn out. Yeah. So um, if you use the formula that the Kansas City Royals used, uh, which is you get as many one-inning pitchers as you can in there, and you use them – you know, from the sixth inning on, they had a bunch of closers. Yeah. You know, Wade Davis may have been the best pitcher in the league <laughs> last year, yeah. and he wasn't even their closer for the most part. You asked Joey Votto what was the toughest at bat you had all year long, he'll tell you Wade Davis. Wade Davis. And he threw him a 97-mile-an-hour cutter that he'd never seen before, and he said it was an unhittable pitch. <laughs> and Votto never says that. Right, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so that's what you have to do. You, you look at this bullpen. And I go back to minor leagues again. There's two ways of bringing up your minor league pitchers. You groom them as starters, you keep them as starters, and then you wait until an opening in the starting rotation arises, and then you bring up Nick Travioso or Robert Stevenson. Or you do it the old-fashioned way, which is you got your starters, they're doing decent, but you got these golden arms down there, and they're throwing 100 miles an hour. And we're, we're, you know, we're going to try to get them to learn how to pitch as a starter. My opinion is, once they pitch a little bit down to minor leagues, get their buns up here to the big leagues. Get them out of the bullpen. Let them learn what it's like to pitch in the major leagues. Let them learn what it's like to pitch in a little bit of pressure. And then if he's a starter next year, he'll establish himself. Believe me, the cream will eventually rise to the top. But you also may find a kid that is one pitch away from being a starter, and he never harnesses that third pitch. But his first two are lights out, and he ends up spending three years in AAA because he doesn't have that third pitch. Amir Garrett may be a perfect example of that. He may not be a starter in the, in the major leagues, but his first two pitches are outstanding. Robert Stevenson, same way. So my inclination is rather than go out and, and get a bunch of 4A, you know, retreads and fill out your middle relief staff, you got arms, man. You got tons of arms. That's where the Reds' depth is. Get them up here. The other thing it does is that once they start pitching in the major leagues, their trade value is higher because yeah. they're big league pitchers. Yeah, sure, sure. Chris Welsh, always a pleasure to talk pitching Jamie with you. Ramsey, hey, at one point, I'm going to be on one of your podcasts when I get my baseball rules website up. Yes, absolutely. It's going to roll out in probably a month or so. It's, yes. it's called Baseball Rules Academy. And uh, it'll be, I mean, I know that you, you test drove it way back when it was yeah. uh, not even close to being finished. It's a lot closer now. And we will, uh, we'll talk about that. Yeah, a bit. I would we'll love quiz that. you on the rules Ooh, of baseball. I, I think I might, especially uh, getting ready for these official scoring duties in spring training. That's right. Yeah, I might need a little refresher course. All right, well, it'll be right online for you. Thanks, Thanks for man. Thanks, Chris. Great to see you. Finally, on this Reds Fest episode of the Better Off Red podcast, we're joined by the cowboy, Jeff Brantley. Jeff was a successful major league closer with the Giants and Reds and is coming off his ninth season as a member of the Reds broadcasting team. He stopped by to tell us about what it takes for the Reds to become a contender, 
the influx of young talent in the Cincinnati system, and the secret behind throwing a good changeup. Here's Jeff Brantley. Jeff Brantley, the Cowboy, is over here, Reds broadcaster, former Red, ultimate closer. What's going on, man? How are you? Just taking um, some family time during the offseason. Uh, just got back from a vacation with my kids. Uh, driving carpool in the morning, getting up, getting the kids ready for school, fixing lunches. Mr. Just, Mom. Just being dad. Just <laughs> yeah. being dad. How awesome is that, though? It, there's nothing like it. I mean, I, I've got four kids. I love being daddy. And, you know, there's, there's nothing better than that face coming home and just – you know, it's something that you miss during the sure. the summer because I'm not with them all the time, even though they get to travel some with me. But yeah. um, that everyday thing is awesome. Yeah, I bet, man. I bet. So uh, Reds Fest is upon us again. I'm sure you've been getting drilled with questions about the team. Let's talk a little bit about this young pitching. That seems to be the hot topic, especially over here in the Reds Connect Zone. We like talking about those guys like John Lamb and Michael Lorenzen and, you know, Kiva Sampson and all of these guys. Robert Stevenson was over here. Tyler Malley just won Reds Minor League Player of the Year. What do you see in that group, and how exciting is it for you to, to watch these guys coming up in spring training? You know, I've talked about this or talked about that subject with a lot of folks that are here this weekend and even before them about the – the excitement and the just the anticipation of all of the competition that will be going on in spring training. I, I don't know that, that we've had a camp since I've been here that you have so many guys that you could put them all in a hat and pull one out and you wouldn't pull out the wrong answer. <laughs> and to have a guy like Rysel Iglesias who came back and, and really threw the ball well at the end of the year last year, uh, Anthony DeSclafani and let me let me mention something about Anthony. If you look at some of the, the better pitchers in the game and you look at their first year in the big leagues as a starter, and, and let's just take David Price because he just signed a monster contract. Oh, yeah. And, and you could put Zach Grinke in the same category. Their first-year numbers don't match Anthony DiScafani. Yeah. That shows you how much difficulty that there is breaking into the big leagues, establishing yourself, but yet there is so much more to DiScafani and – Rysel Iglesias, Michael Lorenzen, and, and I think now that they've got all that initial shock of getting to the big right. leagues, yeah. the, the initial um, surprise of being here, the, the pass and the fail, and we know that failure up here can be brutal sometimes. Oh, yeah. And, and this is really at a point in time in your, in your life where when you fail, it's, it's really that kind of failure that you've never had before. Sure. So it's a learning experience. Right. And you have to figure out how to pick yourself up off the ground. And I think a lot of these guys have, have done that now, and they're excited, and, and I think they understand that there are some things that they have to change in order to get better. And, and that excites me. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I love watching these young guys work. We, we've got a great bunch of talent in this pitching staff, and, and I think it's going to be really neat to watch them develop over a period of time. Yeah, and you mentioned that the fact that they haven't failed at this level or failed at any level any, at any point in their career how important is it for them to find the way to adapt to failure? Well, I think the, the big issue when, when you get to the big leagues, there, there are certain hitters that regardless of how hard you throw a fastball, whether you throw it in, out, up, or down, they're going to hit it and they're going to hammer it. And if you're a fastball pitcher, you feel like you're beating your head against the wall. And in order to, to get those types of hitters out, you've got to have some semblance of a breaking ball that you can throw over the plate or 
in a point in time in the ball game where it's a crucial situation and have confidence in it. But if you've always, I mean, we're human beings are creatures of habit. We are always going to go back to the dance that brought us to the party. Yeah. Whatever you dance best, that's the dance you're going to use when you're in the crowd Mm -hmm. and when it's crunch time. But what you have to figure out is, okay, this dance is out of style. And I've got to figure out what my new dance is, what my new pitch is. And if I can develop that and have even the slightest bit of confidence in it, all of a sudden you've created a new monster. And that makes you a better pitcher in this league. Yeah, and uh, one of the another hot topic over here that we've been talking about, especially with these young pitchers, and I I think you would be so proud of them for talking about it was the importance of a changeup, and they've been talking a lot about you know you hear a lot of guys say my 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 go to pitch is a fastball, which is fine. That's the go to pitch for a lot of a lot of players, but they always talk about wanting to get better with their changeup. And can you tell us a little bit about? How important it is for a guy, especially a starter, to have a good changeup? Well, I think the, the issue with the changeup is they are, they are understanding that they have to learn how to change speeds. Well, the first pitch that pops into their mind is a changeup because what it does is it gets guys off your fastball. If you can get somebody way out in front of whether a curveball, a changeup, a split finger, a slider that sweeps rather large, then your fastball looks that much better. It becomes a surprise pitch then. Sure. It's hard to time a fastball if you can alternate pitches. What they're, what they're seeing now is that a changeup is a great pitch, but a curveball, a slow curveball can be a changeup. Yeah. A slider can be a changeup. What you're trying to do is disrupt timing of the guy that's at the plate. And it, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a change up yeah it's just got to be changing the timing slow it down a little yes. bit so that was going to kind of lead into my next question about a change up does a change up have movement like a traditional change up i know guys throw a circle change and I, it's probably going to be hard to uh translate this over audio but what makes a change up a change up aside from just slowing the ball down the the best thing that you can do with a change up is throw it with the same arm speed that you throw a fastball that, that's your ultimate goal. It's, it's not really about movement because your grip is going to handle taking the velocity off of the changeup. But you want to make sure that you're not dropping your elbow, you're not slowing down your motion. It, it should look just like a fastball until it gets halfway to the plate. That's when you know that you've got that grasp on that pitch. That can be the same. There are a lot of guys that can't do that. I couldn't do that. That's why I went to a split finger. Uh, Roger Clements was the same way. All he did was spread his fingers out across the two seams and use that type of pitch. It's not necessarily about wicked movement when it comes to a changeup. It's about arm speed. You generate arm speed, the hitter is going to see arm speed. They're going to swing at that hand coming through, and then the ball's not going to be there yet. Right. So I guess what I, 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 the next question that I'm going to ask is, is it the grip that does most of the work? Because if you're throwing with the same arm speed and the same angle, there has to be a way that you're manipulating the speed of the pitch, and I guess that's the grip then, right? It's, it's all about grip. It's all about finger pressure or lack thereof. There are a lot of guys that will throw a change up and they'll keep their fingers up, and they jam the ball back into the palm of their hand. Now, that's very difficult to control, but some guys, that's where they find the comfortability factor. There are other guys that like to have the ball way out on the fingertips of not only their 
their fingers in the middle of their hand, but out on the thumb as well. What that does is it makes you really press down with those fingers, but you can't quite get that last little bit of uh mm -hmm. to make the ball have velocity like you would with your fastball. Yeah. But in your mind, you put your grip as you take the ball out of the glove. You're thinking fastball the entire time. That's what you're thinking in your mind because that's what you want the hitter to think. Yeah. And if you can think fastball as you release it, he's going to see fastball and the body will begin to start. And if you can get him to leak in any way at all, you've got him. You've got him. Now, does it help when you're a Raldis Chapman, your change-up's about 92 miles per hour? Well, that, that should show you that the, the difference that you're trying to create is about 8 to 10 miles an hour. Some guys a little more, some guys a little less. But it all goes back to disrupting timing. When you see a Raldis's fastball for the first time, there are some hitters that will never catch up to it. And so the change-up really doesn't, is not relevant for them because they're never going to catch up with a fastball. But for the greater and the better hitters that are in the game, they tend to foul that fastball off or they center it up a little bit. You throw a changeup in there, instead of looking 102, 103, 105 miles an hour, that thing looks like it was shot out of the bazooka. <laughs> and there ain't anybody in there. <laughs> Jeff, if you were the general manager of this team, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but give me a few of the moves that you would do to, to assure that this club has a bright future. I think the, the biggest thing that you have to do is you, you have to bring in young talent. And I, I think that when you're, when you're looking at a ball club that has had the, the injury history that this one has, and, and really there's still question marks going into this season, we, we would like to believe that, that Zach Cozart will be healthy. I mean, he's walking around, jogged up onto the stage, looks great. Same thing for Devin Mezzarocco. And you, you'd like to believe that Homer Bailey will come back without any issue at all. But any time that you take a hot knife and you put it into flesh, there are no guarantees. Right. We, we don't know that up until the point that they actually take the field and they've been out there for a little bit. With that being said, you're paying those guys no matter what, and you're going to have to ride some bumps with those guys as they come back. They're not just going to show up and hit 300 and hit 25 home runs or go out there and throw no hitters on the first day. So you've got to ride that a little bit. With that being said, 2016 is going to be one of those years where you may have some great highs. You may win 10, 15 games in a row, but it may not be a situation where you're able to compete the entire year because you've got a lot of young pitchers sure. and you've got question marks as far as health is concerned. So what you do is you use this year to develop some players, bring in some new guys, some younger guys. I'm not talking about going out and signing big free agents. Sure. I'm talking about bringing in guys that you can see helping you in 2017, the end of 2016, and into the future. I, I fully expect if, if you're the general manager, you want to have this club looking like things with a real positive going into the end of 2016. Because if you, if you play well in August and September of next year, boy, everybody is talking about your ball club, and you're feeling good about yourself as you move into 17. Now, do you have any concerns about the bullpen, or was it just a, a, a something in 2015 in which the starters kind of made the bullpen overwork a little bit? No, I, I, I always have concerns about the bullpen because I think it's an, an integral part of, of any pitching staff, especially when you have young pitchers. And the reason I say that is, you, you want to be able to push your young pitchers so that when they're in the ball game and 
you, you don't want them to go out and, and say, okay, if I've pitched five innings and I give up one run, I've really done a great job. Well, no, you haven't. That, that, that's not what, that's right. not what we're after. Yeah. We want you to go out and pitch seven innings of really quality baseball. Two runs, three runs, and, and keep your team in the game so you hit the setup man and the closer. That's winning baseball right there. So with that being said, you can, with a young pitcher, you can only push him so many times because there are going to be times where they can't figure out how to get out of their own way. And they may only last three innings, and they may be at 90 pitches. Well, if, if that happens, then you've got to transition to the bullpen. If you transition to the bullpen, you've got to have guys down there that understand how to compete. They have to understand how to get hitters out. And, and that becomes an even more important part of your team than it has been in the past because you want to be able to protect your young pitchers. Right. We may see some of our young pitchers pitching out of the bullpen because they'll get enough work. But the, the bottom line for me, for a guy that pitches out of any bullpen in the major leagues, you've got to be willing to take the ball every day. You can't go out on Friday and pitch one inning and then show up and it's a day game on Saturday and say, you know, I'm a, I'm a little stiff. I, I'm not really, I don't want to hear that because I've done that job. Right. And to me, that's an excuse. And yeah. excuses don't float in my book. And that's funny that you say that because I just spoke with Danny Graves on a podcast and he said I could almost almost for the exact same wordage. It was, you know, you have to be willing to get the ball when it's given to you, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter if you pitch four days straight, take the ball and pitch. That's what you're getting paid to do. Well, I can remember Danny Graves, Jeff Shaw, Scott Sullivan, Scott Sullivan. All those guys were were here when I was here. And, and that was our collective mentality out of the bullpen. You take the ball every single day. If, if you've taken the ball five days in a row, and, and people now, they say, five days in a row. Boy, oh, hey, nobody does that. Well, that's what we did. <laughs> and, but, but that's the mentality. It's not that you want to do it, but that's the mentality that you have to have in order to be successful because you're picking up your brothers, and your position players see that too. They know a guy that's been out there three or four days in a row, and he's gutting it out. And then he comes back in after getting out of a bases-loaded jam. It lifts the spirits of your club. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that image of that player, and we talked a little bit about that earlier today as well, is when you see a guy going above and beyond what he's probably being asked to do, that rubs off on people, right? It does, and I think that that's, that's the one thing that fans tend to, to lose sight of is the, the energy that young players bring to a ball club. Now, granted, we've got quite a few veterans on this club, yeah. but I, I've, I've been in both spots. And, and I think as, as a veteran player, you start to see the, the young players and you remember back, boy, that's what I felt like. And, and it re-energizes you. Yeah. You see the excitement, the adrenaline, the, the, the times that you're out there and you get in a, a huge situation and you're successful. And it, it lifts your whole team. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it brings the veterans back to – back to hey we're we're playing winning baseball we want to we want to just come out here and win and you forget about oh this number or that number you just want to win yeah and i think that's what the young players can bring to this club does that make you excited about spring training 2016 seeing these guys that you probably haven't seen a whole lot of just you know some of these guys that have recently been added to the 40 man who are going to be invited to the big league camp is that does that reinvigorate I, you I as think, far as i think this spring will be the most ex exciting spring that we've had since I've been here. And the, the reason, when you have competition across the board, whether it's position players, 
whether it's pitchers, whether it's bullpen, whatever that may be. When you have competition in spring training, boy, you're talking about making for a fun time because everybody is competing. And if you don't think those guys in that locker room are competing against each other as well as the team that's on the other side, I mean, when you get that going, that's when you start building. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, and going back to the image thing as well, we had a few of the minor league, quite a few, several minor league pitchers up here, and one of the questions that I would ask them is, is there anyone that we need to keep an eye on that you do that doesn't necessarily get the Baseball America press or, you know, the recognition that they they probably deserve and are there guys that you learn from that you take something from and I know you did as a player um, and two names that came up and one might surprise you one was Homer Bailey of course he's a he's a guy that guys look at and they see how hard he works Tony Zagrani mentioned that you know just watching him inspires me and another guy was John Moskett of all people he's a guy that I think a lot of people wanted to see get a get an eyeful this year, but unfortunately, with the injury to him, the the terrible injury that he suffered, but he got a lot of credit from some of these minor league guys that think that he has what it takes and his his preparation is you know second to none. Have you have you got that from John? Yes, and you know you, the the thing that I saw in John from from his first pitch at this level is he was not intimidated by the names on the back of the opposing jersey. And that's what I look for. Because you you get to the big leagues, you want guys that are ready to compete. And I think that's the fun part of, of spring training and what will be so exciting this year is you're gonna see guys come to camp that we've never seen before. And what they're gonna realize as they stand, there's a lot of nervousness, there's a lot of anxiety. You're in the locker room with the big leaguers. All of a sudden, you take the mound, and you're in a big league game, and you're, you're high adrenaline, you're sweating, your heart's beating so fast you can't even hear yourself think. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you go out and you pitch your inning or two, and then you come back to the dugout and you realize, I can do this. And that's when the switch clicks. Yeah. And that's what I think the Reds development staff is after. I think that's what the big league staff is after. We want to see it click for the young guys and have that confidence really start to build because that's really where you start to build the basis for your club. Yeah, and, uh, you know, John, I think, does that. Just the, the brief time that he was here that people got to see him pitch, we had the opportunity to see him in spring training, and he dazzled in spring training. And that's another guy. You, you talk about your Michael Lorenzens, your Nick Treviesos, your Amir Garretts, Michael Lorenzens, but I, you, I, I really think that, it would be unfair because of injury to leave John Moscott off that list. No, I, I, I totally agree. And I think the, the thing with John is he understands now that he can do this. And that, that's, that is so much of the battle. Once you get to the top of the hill and you realize, hey, looks pretty good from around here. I, <laughs> yeah. I can handle this. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, I'm not intimidated by it, regardless of what the jersey says on the other side. And, and I think once you get to that point, then you can concentrate on just being 12 years old again and just playing the game, just right. playing ball. Yeah. Because it takes out all the anxiety. It takes out all the nervousness. It takes out all the, the secondary thoughts in your mind. Do I really belong here? And, and I think we've got a lot of guys that qualify in that category. And I, and I think John is going to compete for a spot. And, and I'll tell you another guy that, that nobody really talks about because he got hurt this year mm -hmm. he finished the season in the Arizona Fall League was Travieso yeah 
because yeah. I saw Travieso in spring training. He didn't get a lot of appearances last year, but he's just got that moxie and he's got the three pitch ability to go out there and get it done. Now, does he need some refinement? Sure he does. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that you cannot teach as a coach or as a manager is intestinal fortitude and uh, guts, if you will. Right. You can't teach that part. The kid's got to come with it. Sure. Well, he's got it. Yeah. I mean, hey, he was a number one pick for a reason. And, you know, one thing that I've noticed about these guys just being around them, and I, I've told them, like, look, just seeing you guys together, number one, you seem like a tight-knit group. Like all these, especially this year. Years past, I thought, yeah, you get a minor league here, minor league here. All these guys are together. They're hanging out together. And another thing, especially about it goes for Travieso, is these guys, like you said, they have moxie. They have not an arrogance, but they're confident. They feel like, and they're polite. They're friendly. They get it. They know how to treat people. And I think... I could be naive in saying so, but I think that part of it goes a long way. I think a guy, for example, Corky Miller, he didn't hang around in the big leagues for, you know, so many years because he was, you know, hitting 300 every year. It's because he got along with people. And what do you think of that? Well, I think that's a, that's a credit to not only the, the organization, but it goes back to the scouts. It goes to the scouting director. It goes to the people that are actually making the selections because, you're after kids that not only have a tremendous amount of talent, but they have a tremendous amount of moral character. Yeah. And that's the, that's the one thing that, that bonds kids together. If you've got a lot of um, me, 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 I, I, and I don't like you, and I'm going to, that doesn't usually work out too well. Right. Um, it can work in certain situations, but when you've got a young club, you'd like everybody pulling from the same end of the road. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of these young players, not just the pitchers, but the young players, sense that there is an opportunity to be had at the big league level. Let's face it, when you come out of high school or you come out of college and you've spent time in the minor leagues, you want to get to the big leagues. That's what it's all about. You want to get here and make some money for you and your family. Mm -hmm. The only way that you can do that is by seizing the moment. Well, that moment starts February 14th, right after, <laughs> right after Valentine's Day. Yeah, and uh, it kind of leads into the question about clubhouse chemistry. And I think everybody that I've talked to up here, even last year, this year, last year, and the years past, everybody I still talk to, they think that there is something to clubhouse chemistry. You might not be able to quantify it, but when you're spending 200 days out of the year with the same people, you have to almost kind of be like a family and be on the same page. Would you agree with that? I would totally agree with that. I, I know that as a player and the, the seasons that you go through, you spend more time with the guys that are on your ball club, whether it be flying, whether it be at the hotels, dinners, on the baseball field, during batting practice. You spend more time with those 25 guys than you do with your own family, with your wife or your children. And there has to be some semblance of, uh, camaraderie amongst the group and it can't be a bunch of little sex two guys here three over there because then it, the snipping begins sure and that that's that's loser mentality right that, that doesn't work and you've been on both sides been you've on been on both the sides. yeah I, I've, I've seen it all yeah but I think when you've got a, a collective group as you mentioned before that have that have come through the system together and granted we have some new guys that that have arrived via trades but they got to spend some time in the system and I think creating the, the atmosphere of this is what we're about, this is what we need, this is where we're heading, and we'd like you to be a part of it, I think that brings guys together. And I think all of them seeing that they actually have a chance. It's one thing when you've been in AA for five years and your club keeps signing 
free agent after free agent after free agent, and you kind of feel like at some point, well, I'm never going to make it. I'm yeah. never going to get a call. I'm never going to get a chance. And these kids have a chance, and they've got it right now. Okay, we're going to wrap it up with uh, one last question. This might seem like a weird, loaded question, but it's a true or false question. Coming off a 98-loss season, this is still an exciting time to be a Reds fan, true or false? Uh, there's, that's so true because you're, you're getting to watch guys start the beginnings of their career. Now, we got to see some things last year, and, and some were awesome, some were not so great. But I, I think that you've got so many kids that had an opportunity in the big leagues last year to get over the nervousness, to get their feet wet, if you will. And now they've had a full winter to, to redevelop not only their bodies, but their mentality as to what is expected up here to win. I think this is a point in time where it, it's a crapshoot. I mean, I've seen teams come out of nowhere <laughs> where you think there is no way that club's going to compete, and then all of a sudden there they are. I mean, think about Milwaukee just a few years ago. Yeah. I mean, by the time we got to the All-Star break, these guys were running away with it. Now, right. they, didn't, they did not finish, but, I mean, that's the kind of thing that you look for with young players. Yeah, somebody. I think somebody just mentioned the Mets of this year. Exactly. Yeah. Jeff, it's always a pleasure. I, before we go, I want to I want to compliment you. Um, you know, when you got here as a broadcaster, play-by-play -play was new to you. Oh, was it ever? But I can say I, with full confidence, I'm 100% honest. I think you've turned into one of the best in the game as as far as being a baseball broadcaster, and I, I really enjoy listening to you Thank and Marty. You. And I think you're just you're one of the best, and it's uh, I'm very happy to call you a pal. Thank you, buddy. I love being a Red. We had so many great conversations at Reds Fest, including the three you just heard. I always enjoy talking to the broadcasters, all of whom I spend a lot of time with during the baseball season. They've seen a lot of baseball in their time, and it's interesting to get their take on some of the things going on in the game today. The Better Off Red podcast will take a week off for Christmas, but return on December 31st with more great material from Reds Fest 2015. On the next episode of the podcast, we'll be joined by several of the Reds' up-and-coming young pitchers, including Amir Garrett, Robert Stevenson, Cody Reed, Zach Weiss, Michael Lorenzen, Sal Romano, and Reds Minor League Player of the Year, Tyler Malley. The music you heard on the podcast this week was courtesy of the lovely and talented Lael Neal. Pick up her new album, I'll Be Your Man, which is out now on iTunes. Don't forget to join us at the Holy Grail Banks on Tuesday, December 22nd, for another round of Better Off Red Baseball Trivia, immediately following a live production of the Reds Hot Stove League radio show. Thank yous go out this week to the Cincinnati Reds, Marty Brenneman, Chris Welsh, and Jeff Brantley, and my pal, Lisa Braun. A very special thanks to the Michael Jordan of podcast directing, Nick Prince, without whom this podcast would not exist. That's all from BOR Headquarters. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jamie Ramsey. Expect good news. Oh,